0: It's the Wonky
1: Show. We're talking about the final stage of the free speech bill, a new Brown review and the AI chat robot making waves online. It's all coming up.
2: That's why the governance issue is so important. Mm. You know, mm. who owns this and who, what else do they own and, and why? Um, I mean, without becoming paranoid about it, I think we should be um, you know, barking on these sorts of initiatives without having a really clear understanding of it.
1: Welcome to The Walkie Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news policy and analysis. I'm Walkie's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach. And joining me to scratch beneath the surface of higher education this week are three titans of HE policy. In London, it's Nicola Dandridge, Professor of Practice in Higher Education Policy at the University of Bristol. Nicola, your hire for the week, please.
2: Well, I think it was uh, a CARA trustee meeting yesterday, which I went to. I'm a trustee of the Council for At-Risk Academics. And what it does is uh, place academics at risk of persecution in their country of origin, mainly now Afghanistan, Ukraine, Yemen, Turkey, and so on, in UK universities. And what came over so strongly yesterday was the, despite all the headwinds that UK universities are facing, they are still being incredibly generous in welcoming uh, these academics into the universities. And it was very reassuring and fantastic to hear about just the extent of their Generosity and support.
1: Lovely. And the Pavier's Garage in Cambridge, it's Jonathan Grant, director at different angles. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please.
3: Well nice to be back, Mark. Um, I guess not dissimilar to Nicola, my highlight of the week was a um, sponsoring committee event to establish a branch of Cambridge Citizens, um, which I attended last night. And it was just so inspiring, reaffirming um to meet other people um in the city. Um, from schools from further education colleges from both universities um, who are committed to sort of meaningful social action through the art of community organizing so it's very early days um, in establishing a cambridge citizens but um, i'm very enthusiastic and excited to be involved mm.
1: and in manchester it's sunday blake Wonkies associate so sunday you're hired of the week please
4: Uh, My highlight of the week was attending the Knight Foundation trustee board uh, where we got to look at the year in review for the charity... Um, and see all the great work that's been done to help care experienced and estranged students.
1: Now, we start the week with the free speech bill. It's final throws in Parliament. Jonathan, what has happened this week?
3: Well, last night, the um, higher education brackets free speech bill, close brackets to give it its full title, um, moved from the report stage to the third reading in the House of Lords. Um, It's probably just worth reflecting a bit on the background to this um, because the um, bill was first um, taken, tabled um, back in May 2021 by a certain Gavin Williamson, um, now Sir Gavin Williamson, not at that time, um, to address um, perceived issues within the sector around um, freedom of speech. And I actually gave evidence at the committee stage in the House of Commons in September 2021. Um, And whilst I'm overly sceptical about the bill, the need for it and what it's trying to do, I think last night there were two amendments which, as a sector, we should um, welcome um, quite enthusiastically. Um, The first amendment was slightly strange because it it was kind of an add-on but not unimportant, um, which is the banning of the use of um, NDA's non-disclosure agreements, um, in relation to misconduct or alleged misconduct, um, and this is a, a this is a, a debate which has been occurring in the sector for some time. There's been a um, sort of voluntary um, campaign to um, ask universities to pledge about not misusing NDAs in, in this way, um, and this amendment would actually um, make it unlawful to do so. And you know, basically, I I, I would conclude that you know this has been an unsavoury practice. Um, quite widespread in the sector and it's probably a good thing um, that we move away um, from that practice.
1: Turning to amendment six, tabled by the noble lord, Lord Collins of Highbury, which seeks to prohibit providers and constituent colleges from entering into non-disclosure agreements with staff, members, students and visiting speakers, in relation to complaints of sexual misconduct, abuse or harassment, or other forms of bullying or harassment. I'd like to thank the noble Lord for tabling this, following the debate at committee and in the other place. And as uh, your Lordships will have seen, I have put my name uh, to the amendment.
3: But probably more relevant to the whole debate around um, around freedom of speech is the amendment tabled by um, former universities minister, um, now Lord David Willits, um, which was to remove a Clause 4. Um, for older listeners, it seems slightly strange that we have a former Tory um, removing a Clause 4, um, but um, the point here was that this was the Clause um that allowed um people who felt that they had been denied their freedom to speak to actually um go to um to court and to sue either the university and or um the student union um and Willits and and many other people i think um felt that this um threat of legal action would actually in itself have a chilling effect because nobody would be willing to take the risk on inviting in if you like um controversial um, speakers. And I think of people who try to organise events painstakingly to promote freedom of speech in their universities, trying to find a neutral chair who will chair two highly controversial and disputing views. When one person turns up, they try to arrange for the B2B an alternative, try to find the right place where these meetings can turn up. And sometimes they are already traduced in the media as if somehow they are part of the problem when they're actually trying very decently to be part of the solution will the prospect of a legal challenge to what they're doing give them the confidence to carry on organising those events and promoting freedom of speech in our universities? I fear it will have the opposite effect. Um, it's interesting also because because to a degree the government had backed down and had moved, um, had tabled its own amendment where it um, effectively allowed the um, intervention, the legal intervention um, to occur after um, or other routes that have been explored. So, uh, again, a, a bit of, um, policy jargon, um, to create a backstop. Um, but the Lords, um, actually passed the, um, the Willett's amendment, which meant that this, um, clause four has actually been removed, um, from the bill.
4: An institution guilty of violating academic freedom would have to fork out cash to an individual <laughs> whose rights were infringed. And as one academic law professor, Professor Julius Grover, an associate professor at the University of Oxford, points out that threat alone could be enough to encourage university and college leaders to promote academic freedom.
3: Um, Just to finish, Mark, I think it's important to stress it's not all over. Um, The the bill goes to the third reading of the House of Lords and then to a degree it's up to how the government will respond. You, You may get one of these ping pong um, effects where it goes between the Commons um, and, and the Lords, but um, you know I think the overall sense of the debate is that's reasonably um, unlikely, um, and it does seem that common sense has prevailed. Um, I did have a quick look um, at the uh, Toby Young and the Free Speech Unions. Um, twitter feed this morning to see how they were reacting um and you know the free speech union for example has a has a tweet out um accusing um lords of being too close to university vice chancellors um but it doesn't seem to be um that strong a backlash um so overall i think quite a good night for the sector
1: Hmm. um and yeah wonky wonky show uh listeners have been following the twists and turns of, of of this one since the beginning um the let's start with the the clause for the statutory tort that that's been removed um now and nicola i, I you know i'm not going to pick on you too much you know now i you know you have moved on from from ofs but surely you know you'd be in your old role as, at ofs you'd be you'd be breathing a sigh of relief that this one has gone because of the the legal quagmire that was predicted in terms of how everyone was just going to start suing each other left right and center
2: well um as you quite rightly <laughs> saying mark i can't speak in any capacity as um ofs either you know current or or former, but um, I've always been quite clear and actually quite public about the fact I thought Clause 4 was a bad idea. Um, so I am massively relieved and I actually thought the Lord's debate on this was really interesting. Because I, I haven't I didn't watch it, I read Hansard and you read it through and it's as if the government's compromise, the the backstop um that Jonathan was talking about is going to go through and then suddenly David Willits comes in with his proposal to um the amendment to abolish the whole of clause four and then it goes to the vote and it's quite a close close vote actually, two on eight to one seven five, and the whole thing gets abolished. And it's it's kind of yeah, I'm not saying saying. House of Lords debates are ever exciting, but it's as close to exciting as it can get. And I do think this is really quite significant because it's not just that, as Jonathan said, it would have a a chilling effect. It would be an absolute recipe for, for litigation and be massively um, expensive and uh, I think damaging actually to not just universities but student unions too so I think this is welcome and I very much hope that it doesn't get reintroduced in the commons because actually what's left it's not a um, a, a, you know a weakened bill I think the power the new powers that are created uh, for the OFS and more widely, and the, the responsibilities imposed on universities are, are really—they—they um, they achieve, I think, in broad terms the objectives that are sought. You don't need this tort as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think without that, I mean, the, the the strongest opposition to this bill is going to fall fall away substantially. I mean, there are big debates about whether it was needed in the first place, but that's kind of you know that that that's moved on. It was this, it was clause four. It was this legal tort that I think people were concerned about. Most and I'd be surprised if there was going to be. I'd be surprised if there was anyone going to take you know take take on a cause of seriously objecting at this point. Given yeah, the 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 really the really kind of most contradictory, most problematic element has been has been stripped out. Um, Let's so moving on to the um, NDA question. That was a surprise because the government accepted a a Labour amendment on that. And um, what's fascinating about this is the kind of implication that. Um, th- th- this wouldn't have this wouldn't have happened um, had the sector accepted the voluntary code on this proposed by uh, then universities minister uh, Mich- Michelle Donlan. Um, but um, now, now banning NDAs in in the in the, in in in, when, in cases of sexual harassment is is looks like it's going to come into legislation. Jonathan, you you said that was that should be welcomed by the sector. I think most people would agree with that. Um, Sunday, what's your read of this?
4: Um, obviously i do think it's a good thing um i think we have to be really careful though because um obviously officially banning an nda is great on paper but even before this passed, institutions have sort of outwardly said that they don't use ndas because they haven't used something called a non-disclosure agreement but they have been found to be using like confidential confidentiality clauses um so it's how it's going to be sort of implemented and regulated is how i mean like i'm interested to see how that pans out i think also um it it's one thing having something discussed and agreed on in a house of lords it's another thing students knowing their rights so um in in lots of cases of sexual misconduct and even um someone that i was interviewing uh, a couple of weeks ago said my university told me i couldn't tell anyone about this so I didn't and particularly that that's my concern is that there is you know technically there's no NDA involved there but this is a school leaver age student who has been told by their institution uh, that they're not allowed to tell anyone so I think this can't just be a sort of quiet amendment it has to go alongside a culture change in the way that we deal with sexual violence Uh, both at an institution and a sector level. Um, And it has to uh, go alongside students knowing their rights around investigations, around complaints, around outcomes, um, as well as having trust in the institution, which I'm not seeing much of. So um, things like the Office for Students Prevalence Survey, I'm really interested to see where that goes, because obviously, they're going to be looking at Uh, prevalence rates and we can then compare that to report rates and work out sort of how that indicates the level of trust that students have in their institution so yeah it's it's good it's fundamentally a really good thing uh you know to have this in black and white but it has to go alongside a culture change as well Nicola what what do you think
1: Do do you think the sector should uh should should be welcoming this. Uh, I mean, so Sunday and, and Jonathan said so for I guess for slightly different reasons. But what do you what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it is quite. I mean, I think it's a, a good thing, and um, uh, uh, and I do, I doubt that the sector is going to be um, is going to oppose this. Well, I mean, not that it could if it wanted to, but um, I think the clarification of not using these NDAs is quite a good thing. I mean, I'm rather with Sunday on this. I think the practicalities are going to be very interesting because actually the. Um, The way it's drafted restricts restricts, um, the the ban to uh, complaints of sexual misconduct, harassment and bullying, but not other things. And I don't quite know how that's going to work out, given that normally these sorts of complaints raise all sorts of issues, of which only some will be subject to this NDA ban. Um, So I think uh, I agree with Sunday that the uh, that it's going to need quite a lot of thought as to how it's implemented, so that it achieves the objectives it wants. But generally, I think it's 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 a good thing. I mean, it's you know it's about transparency, and in this area of all areas, that that must be welcome.
1: Mm. And more work for the lawyers, probably, uh, almost certainly. Um,
3: Mark, could I just come in there? So, so I absolutely agree um, with, with Sunday's comments in terms of implementation. Um, but I was just, I, this morning I was doing a quick sort of Google round to see whether. Other sectors, non-HE sectors, um, have similar sort of statutory bands of NDAs in place. And um, as far as I can work out, that's not the case, including the civil service, um, although there has been debate about that um, in the past. So I do think um, it's worth just reflecting that the um, the HE sector may actually be leading on this. Um, and we'll be a bit of a guinea pig for how it plays out in terms of implementation as well.
1: Yes, that's a really good point. It'd be absolutely fascinating to see how this this this, this shakes out. Right, and you can read more about the free speech bill as you, as ever in the show notes and on monkey.com. Um, right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
0: The pandemic had a lasting impact on students' well-being. During lockdown, students were suffering different levels of trauma and were supported by caring teaching staff who engaged with them via digital technologies. Caring teachers recognised student trauma and worked hard to create stimulating and engaging environments for them, using digital tools to encourage active collaboration and dialogue. When lockdown ended, students' study on campus asked for a returned classroom study. We are urging universities to identify and maintain the benefits to students accrued through learning online, while also retaining benefits of face-to-face teaching. This can be achieved through a pedagogy of care. Well-designed, blended learning can sustain a caring approach to teaching in ways that can support students through challenging times
1: now gordon brown is back with a review of the uk constitution for the labor party with quite a lot of interesting little things for higher education um as well as uh the broader shape of what the Labour party wants to do um if it wins the next election nicola can you talk us through it
2: yes well this is uh, a great uh, political blast from uh gordon brown's commission on devolution and constitutional reform uh and uh As the name suggests, it's mainly focused on proposals for devolution and constitutional issues, Um, deals with lots of issues, quite broadly um, presented, so not a lot of detail yet. Um, And it uh, proposes setting up a new constitutional statute, proposals on cleaning up Westminster. Um, The issue that's um, cleaning up Westminster, I mean, Uh, dealing with how MPs behave. So, for example, majority of second jobs will be outlawed, things like that. Um, And the proposal, which has caught the headline most of all, is uh, reform of the House of Lords, which would be substantially reformed and slimmed down to become a democratically elected assembly of the nations and regions with oversight of the new uh, constitutional arrangements. But also, I mean, it's very clear that it's going to carry on uh, with its role of um, scrutiny of of proposed legislation um, from the House of Commons, which is interesting in the context of the um, uh, free speech uh, discussion we've just had. You know, they will carry on playing that kind of really important role. Um, Of relevance to higher education in particular are the proposals to devolve powers to cities and regions particularly in relation to developing their own economic and social plans and it's very explicit that universities are going to be partners in uh, the, the development of those plans and also skills development there's a rather odd um, a few comments saying that universities are not involved in um, discussions about regional skills developments and I thought that was slightly curious because I'm not sure that's Strictly true, but anyway, whatever their role is being promoted um, in in this agenda, and that is, um, you know, very welcome. On skills, very much focused on FE um, proposals for um, streamlined funding arrangements and planning, uh, reference to the need to develop more technical skills and STEM graduate skills. Um, and that comes in the context of a place-based R&D and innovation clusters focus and, and it's support for the Strength in Places funding from UKRI and so on. Um, and then um, finally, uh, reappraisal of relations with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland um, emphasis on just really embedding the perspectives of the devolved nations into Westminster decision making um, and uh, that's something that would be overseen by the um, reformed uh, House of Lords. The I That's a very crude summary of some quite detailed proposals. The one thing I did um, pick out though is that the focus on um, regional planning and funding arrangements very much on skills and then universities cast in their role as um, developing research and innovation and nothing it was silent on the role of universities educative role for undergraduates um, apart from that passing reference the need for more STEM graduates so um, what you get you know even though there's this huge focus on um, regional economic development and uh the uh, how how important it is to focus on the the regional and place based perspectives. It's nothing on the role of um Undergraduate ed- education in that context, and my, my final comment on this is that it's rather curious to be reading this and this, at the same time as looking at the UCAS end of cycle data that's just been published, where you see massive discrepancies in terms of participation, with some boroughs in London graduating over sixty percent, um, uh, well, so applicants over sixty percent, and in the northeast and southwest, right down at thirty one percent. So there's huge regional imbalances in terms of graduate participation, but that doesn't play into the report and. Um, I think that's a shame but overall I mean it's a tremendous you know, commitment to regional devolution with universities at heart it's now um, open for consultation and we'll have to see how much of this actually makes it through into the Labour Party's manifesto. Hmm,
1: hmm. Fascinating stuff Um Jonathan it occurs to me that the, the place-based um, innovation-led R&D stuff uh, presents quite a quite a bunch of interesting opportunities for universities even though universities aren't kind of explicitly put as the the drivers of that in 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 the work clearly there's there's a lot of lot of things to backfill this but opportunities nonetheless right
3: yeah no i agree and and also i think um we should realize that universities are doing this to a degree as well um i remember back in um the 2014 ref looking at um where impact occurs geographically and, you know, identifying places like um, sort of Huddersfield and Bradford, I think, um, had the highest number of impact case studies that were having a local impact. And I'm involved in um, repeating that analysis currently for the 2021 REF. And again, we're seeing that um, so that, that, you know, universities are having um, impacts in their vicinity through their research and innovation activities um as well as through um their education activities and sort of being a a employer or a sponsor employer um in their locality so um you know um <laughs> slightly strange for a wonky show but the, you know i think we this is a very welcome um intervention if you like and i think it's up to the universities to almost help but some of that detail on um the sort of the, the skeleton outlined in the review um and really sort of champion what universities can do um at a at a local level um in supporting um communities through all three of their missions um, be that sort of, um, engagement research or, or education. The other, the other thing I just, um, reflect on, so I think the data Nicola just shared there on, um, sort of university participation rates by regions really interesting. And one of the things that we, we're looking at at the moment in the REF21 data is the sort of, um, flow of impact. And we are finding a degree of levelling up. So you do find, if you like, institutions in the Southeast, the Golden Triangle, um, describing, um, research that has a, had an impact outside of the Golden Triangle. Um, so again, when we think about some of these things, there is a sort of quite a nuance, if you like, to some of the way that the universities operate both locally, nationally, and obviously internationally.
1: Mm, yeah, fascinating. Uh, and it is, you know, this is, this is, I guess, as we head towards the general election cycle, we're getting more and more, aren't we, a sort of sense of mood, even some detail of what Labour's thinking and plans and ideas are. And, and it is... It is very interesting because we've we've been a sort of you know we've been a bit of a policy glut uh, policy. Uh, we've we've let's start that again. Um, we've not heard much from uh, Labour in terms of its thinking for for quite some time. Um, and you know this th- what's dominated this space has been the discussion of levelling up, which looks like it it just feels like it hasn't really gone anywhere in 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 a, in a very substantial way. Um, this this is a this is a the sort of start of a different alternative, isn't it?
3: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that, and I think the the chat you know so it it was interesting when in the you know the very long leveling up white paper how few times universities were mentioned they were mentioned but it wasn't um a dominant theme um and you know i think anybody in any city or any town which has a university will realize that universities are part of that partnership local partnership um to help stimulate um economic growth um I I mean I agree with Nicola. I think there's a you know, the, the sentiment in the Brown report is, is very welcome, but it the, the devil will be in the detail. And actually I think that's where um we should get on the front foot and start to really think through what, if you like, local civic partnerships could look like um with universities acting as one of the leaders in that in that um in, in that role. Um with, with an aim to deliver local impacts. And just as an aside on that, I do think on the research and innovation side, we you know, we do use this language of world leading and science. Superpower, um, but actually, the impact, the local impact of research and innovation seems to me as important. And a lot of the um, incentive systems, whether that's REF, whether that's research grant funding, still focus on that world leading um, sort of language. And maybe we just need to reflect a bit around that as well um, and support um, research and innovation that is designed to have a local impact as well.
1: Mm. Mm, fascinating um Nick, i mean nicola i had i had you nailed on as a um as a as a as a peer at some point entering house of lords um i'd be sorry if it if it gets reformed to the point that you don't get the opportunity i'd love to see you i'd love to see you in that chamber
2: that is uh. the most ridiculous suggestion mark <laughs> if you don't mind me saying i mean, but can i just i agree with what john said about world leading it's the one bit that really grated when i read it um because actually all the focus is on the regional role of universities which is totally different way of categorizing them and sort of that easy moniker of world leading which is associated as Jonathan said with with um, incentives that drive in quite the opposite direction it just felt rather unhelpful and odd.
4: A lot of this was sort of music to my ears um, as someone who sort of studied and lived in a uh, relatively rural and remote part of the country Um I thought like following on from what uh, Nicola said around sort of that graduate retention in London versus other areas, that's, I mean, that has a huge impact on things like levelling up and skills retention. I find that, um, and again, I can only, <laughs> talking from a position of in Devon and Cornwall, our graduates don't stay in the region. Now, I haven't got concrete evidence on exactly why this is. But obviously, where Nicola is saying, you know, you've got 60% of graduate intake in Greater London, uh, going into the institutions, uh, 41% of those graduates then uh, stay in London, whereas only 30% of uh, local graduates stay in the region in places like uh, well yeah in Devon and Cornwall so we we tend to find that these places hemorrhage graduates into the main cities and obviously that then has an impact on that regional development um I also think it's really interesting to look at this from a sort of WP perspective I (laughs) one of the things I see Central London Universities praised for a lot is their sort of outreach local outreach and intake and um, how well they're doing in terms of WP but obviously that like a huge part obviously these institutions do work very hard and do very well but a huge part of that success is based on the fact that they are in a place with like incredible transport structures Um and like the, the support the support is there from the sort of local authorities whereas if you come back to places like and and you know there's extreme deprivation in London as well so when we're looking at WP and like um, like low income households, obviously, they are sort of hitting those targets. But if you look at somewhere like Devon and Cornwall, um, OFS gap ward analysis said that 8% of the uh, wards in Devon and Cornwall fall into the lowest 20% of young people entering higher education. And that is down to the fact that there is just absolute extreme poverty in areas of devon and cornwall where they haven't got the transport routes to get to the institution so they you know you'll be looking at a student who is taking 4 hours worth of public transport to get onto campus so if universities are going to be sort of centralized in this discussion around like the you know the power and the discussion and the conversation is going to be being put into the local into the local authorities and the local regions and universities are going to be able to be part of that conversation. I think all those sort of nuances around graduate skills, local intake, I think that those are going to become really clear and contribute to, well, potentially contribute to better, level, better leveling up.
1: And now it's time for the hidden history of higher education with sector historian Mike Ratcliffe. So Tony Crosland
5: uh, decides that there aren't going to be any more universities, but he decides that the expansion that uh, he needs in higher education is going to come through a new type of institution. So Crosland makes his famous Woolwich speech. He talks about how we should have a public sector of higher education um, and starts to set about the process of thinking about how that might be and that leads to a white paper on polytechnics the idea that we should start to have a different type of institution owned by the local authorities responsive to local needs um, and Crossland says that we should have uh, these universities shouldn't be caught up on um, the uh, snobbish um, sense that they all had to be universities he wants to stop them from from going on and becoming universities he wants to stay where they are and that's underpinned by a a theory that uh, one of his advisors till Burgess has of academic drift that what happens is that uh, a local college gets above its station effectively and develops more and more uh, um, higher education becomes a university and then ignores its locale afterwards so he wants to fix the polytechnics in their place so there's a, uh, another one of those great exercises where local authorities get to bid to have uh, their institutions turn to the moon. The idea in this case is not a completely new institution, uh, but to see whether or not your technical college has got enough a critical mass of full-time students that it might become a polytechnic uh, and so there are various different bids and that involves all the local authorities thinking how they can amalgamate their higher education into into a sufficient mass now that means particularly for the polytechnics that they have to be in existing la- uh, large areas because there isn't enough critical mass out in the countryside where they put some of the new universities so the polytechnics are all uh, start off being based in in larger city centres which often means that the poly turns up in a city that has already got a university because by the time it's got there it's had an old university so the poly comes along so in terms of spatial policy it's useless because well the polys just end up in the same cities as the universities but um, they they get going and they pull those things together now some places don't get to have their poly so Hull um, really looked like it was going to be a leading contender to have uh, its polytechnic but it didn't come off There was, you know arguments uh, and in the end the, 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 they didn't get a polytechnic in a hole and other people were kept waiting um, there were discussions about which bits would get merged together but the idea was to create uh, this public sector. Now the other clever thing they managed to do is they used the kind of scheme that they'd done with the college's advanced technology and have a body to approve the awards and this is the CNAA the Council for national academic awards and this is, innovation allows government off the hook of giving degree awarding powers out to all these different institutions and allowing them to say well look we're just going to have this one body that would prove them and the, the masterstroke for the cnaa is that they don't go for the London model of setting the exams and making the students do it they allow the courses to develop with the institutions the institution can bring much more of its local flavor there's a coordinating sense so that you know a degree in business is broadly similar um, across the the UK but actually you start to get quite a lot of local variations and that includes some of the really innovative things the negotiated pathways leading to degrees and independent studies and you you get quite a lot of, of distinctiveness that comes out and it develops quite a good corpus in terms of you know understanding how our courses work develops quite a lot of um, good practice and the the concepts that really underpin the cnaa tradition underpin quite a lot of what then becomes part of hqqc and qaa the idea that it would be quite a good idea to think about a course before you started it quite a good idea to be have you know quite a lot of transparency about the information uh in time it becomes a vehicle for considering that modules might be a good way of organizing them but none of that set down at the start but but you start to get much more of a kind of development of a homogeneity of how you might organize courses which puts the uk on a pretty good setting so the polytechnics head off in that direction they survive the change of government in 1972 now there's a good chance that when uh, the conservatives took over they could have killed off two things they could have killed off the open university and they could have killed off the polytechnics but margaret thatcher likes the polytechnics the polytechnics are um kind of business orientated they're trying to develop skills they're quite up for um offering um, expansion uh, and not complaining about it too much. And there's a great, um, again, on the file of the National Archives, an example where um, leaders of higher education were invited along to meet the Prime Minister and they are invited to dinner at number 10. Uh, and there 's a great briefing note that explains to Ted Heath exactly what status these these people are so there 's these lovely little vignettes against each of the vice chancellors saying which ones are clever and which ones are uh, which ones are uh, know what they 're doing, which ones look a bit bumbling but actually quite bright underneath it so there's th- there 's that kind of stuff the kind of stuff that you probably get given now uh, when you go to these kind of things but there 's a general summation of the two camps. Vice-Chancellors are concerned about the role and standing of universities. They suspect that the government underpriced them and do not consider them relevant enough. Whereas on the other side of the binary line, the polytechnics are generally in good heart. They have their preoccupations. Chief amongst them is the need for greater clarification of their role, particularly in relationship to the local authorities, and the massive expansion trebling of student numbers following in the white papers so the polytechnics have gone in to see ted heath saying yep we will treble our numbers we will go for expansion uh, and they will pull that off so that kind of sense of the conservatives can look to polytechnics to be the kind of organization uh, to come on and develop them is, is something that underpins margaret thatcher's time as secretary of state for education right at the beginning of the seventies.
1: Jeez. Okay, it dropped like a bomb over last week—the ChatGPT software and op- from OpenAI—with um, uh, a bunch of implications for university students and, well, really, you know, all of humanity. Sunday, talk us through it.
4: Ah, uh, yes. Okay, this is. Uh an AI uh, chat box, um, and there has been concern around how this will be used in universities, um, particularly among uh, students and the impact that it's going to have on the traditional learning experience. So uh, some people are arguing that the advanced uh, language processing abilities of uh, chat GPT Uh, can enhance an educational process by personalising feedbacks and suggestions to students on their writing via AI. Um, However, others are worried that a reliance on technology could lead to a decline in critical thinking thinking skills and a lack of creativity in uh problem solving this week also saw the results of Jisc's teaching staff digital experience insight survey um and the highlights were that less than a third of staff actually agree that online teaching allows them to teach in their preferred method um and Similarly, less than a third thinks that they can conduct assessment fairly uh, using digital teaching uh, platforms. And agreement among staff that online teaching enables students to make good progress was also very low at 30%. Um, Of the respondents, and there were around three and a half thousand from 30 different organisations, they did agree that online teaching was convenient for them, um, with around 90% uh, of surveyed. Uh, participants conducting at least some of their teaching from home
2: I am equally um, unbelievably uh, excited and astonished by chat GPT and similar and terrified by it and um, I mean terrified because it's so incredibly powerful and also worth bearing in mind it's a it's a Elon Musk um, initiative originally Um, so I had a go with it and I asked it Um, a a sort of fairly innocent question about what the point of going to university is, if you could study courses online for free. And it came back with the most incredibly thoughtful answer. I mean, really good actually about the fact that going to university is worth much more than just studying and um, you know an answer that really was I thought worthy of a UK press release and then I sort of pressed it a bit saying well what is your opinion about x y and z and it just wouldn't budge on that it said I am not programmed to give opinions and I tried to have a debate with it saying but are you saying that the, the very sophisticated information that you're putting out is not hasn't got values embedded in it and it just wouldn't it wouldn't accept that it just said no i'm completely objective and i mean that's where it starts getting rather scary because it sort of implies that this is objective knowledge but i mean it is programmed and it's taking its information from the internet and i think and um and and uh, by the way incidentally i also asked it what the meaning of life was just to see what it came up with and um it was absolutely useless on that too it just said different people have different views but look going coming back to he um so I'm still searching for the meaning of life. But going back to H.E., um, I mean, I, I, the positive is that it, it, this could be um, an incredibly useful learning resource if used properly. And I was also, go, go, you know, putting in some more sensible things, asking it for its views on um, English literature, actually. And it, it's really, you know, it can be really, really useful. But I think the challenge is how is it gets u- how it gets used um and how can you control its content when it's a basically a for-profit organization as far as i understand it
1: um yeah Jonathan, it raises a bunch of questions does it on on things like assessment um on the one hand um you could it, you know you could see how th- it could speed up uh it could speed up assessment on the other hand you could also see how it can create new forms of uh new forms of cheating
3: Yes. Yeah, so, I, so, I i mean, I i tried to log on to it, but it wouldn't accept me for whatever reason. So, I didn't get to play with it, which I'd love to have done. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I think with all of these technologies, um, there's always upsides and downsides. And I, I guess the, the challenge is to, um, you know, sort of um, mitigate the downsides and manage the upsides. Um, but from what I read about it and from what Nicholas just said, it, it is an extraordinary bit of technology. And one that we um, should embrace um, because, frankly, it's not going to go away. So, the question is, does that, how does it change practice in the future, potentially? Um, And uh, as Nicola just highlighted, what are the ethical dimensions, i.e., this is potentially a for profit um, tool, but I assume others would come on the market um, in the future. in terms of assessment, I, I, right, I just, so in fairness, yep. I
1: think that they have put the they have put it out for free uh, to to get feedback and to yeah. help it develop. And it's yeah, but um, yeah,
3: but they put it out for free to get feedback because they their feedback strengthens their algorithms that then they can market in the future. Um, yeah, w- w- which is quite classic um, model um, for AI stuff, as as far as I can can tell. Um, but I, I do think. Um, yeah. So on the assessment question, I, I think the question is not how this affects assessment, but it's the broader question: is how should we effectively assess in the future in the context of the digital age? Um, and now that's a debate that's been going on for a long, long time. Um, so I just think this is another layer into that debate, um, and what 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 is the most appropriate way to assess. In the 21st century is probably not the same as the appropriate way in the 20th century. Um, I don't have the answers to that, but I, 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 you know, I don't think we should get too hung up on that. Particular question. Um, the, the other thing, just as a as a slight aside, Mark is um, in the research arena. You're seeing some incredible applications of AI. Um, so DeepMind, which is part of Google, uh, I've been doing a, a, a wee bit of work with them. Um, they have this thing called AlphaFold, which um, predicts protein structures, um, and that has transformed structural biology in a in a way that you know five years ago you probably wouldn't have envisaged, um, and you know potentially speeded up. Um, pipelines from, you know, sort of lab to um, drug development and such like. Um, so all of this is is out there. It's happening. and Some of it's extraordinary. Um, and I think the question is, how do we adapt to use these technologies in an ethical and fair way?
1: Yeah, it felt, I mean, for me, I think you're absolutely right. The, you know, the um, the debates are not new. I think what was just startling about this week is just, I, I think the technology has just moved on in a, in a way that's so much more advanced than i think a lot of people realized and and you know most of this you know this this a lot of this tech has only been you know been in the hands of researchers and things for um for a few years and and i think you know because a lot of the public ai stuff is kind of you know a bit a bit naff a lot of the time um so this i don't know it just i don't know it was just a bit of a a bit of a kind of oh my oh my god moment when um you could start seeing what it could what it could do um, we, yeah, we,
3: it couldn't answer the meaning of life question, though, could it? No, but you <laughs> so. could
1: ask it. You could ask it what someone might, with certain beliefs, might think the meaning of life yes. is, or yes. those sort, those sorts of things. Which is, you know, it's super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of doing one of next week's wonky dailies, all, all generated by <laughs> ChatGPT. See if anyone notices. Yes. The sad thing, because it's not connected to the internet, which is really sad. Because if it was, then you know we might actually be able to do that. Um, they've, but they've, done, they've, they've not connected it to the internet, in, at least publicly, I guess, for those ethical reasons. Because you could then start, you know, putting out quite a lot of misinformation and all sorts of other ethical kind of ethical things get get thrown up. But I mean, given that it's possible, you know, that looks like where everything is is heading, doesn't it?
2: that's why the governance issue is so important mm. you know mm. who owns this and who, what else do they own and and why um i mean without becoming paranoid about it i think we should be um you know barking on these sorts of initiatives without having a really clear understanding of those sorts of arrangements and and johnson says the ethical implications are really fundamental
1: so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Monkey Show via Spotify, Acast, Apple or Google Podcasts, or for real listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thank you very much to Nicola, Jonathan, Sunday, and everyone at Team Monkey that helps make it happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay wonky.